Today on Never Was a Gamer, Morgan Freeman shoots a gun. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is Dimitri, who I don't have a good description for this time because I don't know anything about this game. Oh, no. (laughs) It's really bad. (laughs) Bound to happen sometime. Yeah. It's weird that... So, today's game is Half-Life. It's weird that you don't know anything about it because... Half-Life Alex was just came out relatively recently. Yeah, but I've kind of been on blackout for that because I didn't want to accidentally learn stuff that oh. would taint this okay. process. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Um, but before we get into Half-Life, maybe we should do a quick check-in. Because mm-hmm. this will be the sixth game you've played for the show. Right. And we haven't really explicitly acknowledged this since I think episode zero. But these are all building to something. And really, I think we have 11 or 12 games that are going to culminate in your first encounter with some From Software game that we haven't decided exactly which one yet. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it'll be either Dark Souls or Bloodborne, but we don't know which of those two. Right. Yeah. And so maybe this is a good time to just check in to see how you've been. Have you been feeling like you've becoming uh, more of a gamer? So the most surprising thing about this entire process is like a little bit yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think... I think I have finished a couple of games that I probably wouldn't have tried otherwise. Um, And I I think this is going to be another one of those. Maybe. I think I a couple of games have turned out to be not as hard as I thought they were going to be, or at least not hard in the ways that I was afraid they would be. Hmm. Um, I feel like one of the things that I'm learning through this process is actually that I've been underestimating my ability to get through some of this stuff it's a struggle sometimes they're not all they're not all uh super super fluid which i think has been my favorite word for describing what controls are not (laughs) um but yeah i don't know i feel i feel more optimistic now than i did before we started these games about my ability to actually get through a fromsoft oh that's that's good yeah yeah what do you feel about that because you one of your most frequent refrains is, <laughs> oh, God, you're never going to make it through a From Software game. <laughs> or like every level in Mario 64 at the start, you'd be like, I don't think this is the level for you, like over <laughs> and over again. So, okay. So I think on on the whole, I'm very optimistic. Okay. But as you've been going through, yeah, there's always been certain games have little red flags <laughs> for me. And it's like, oh, you're really frustrated by this. Those games do this times 10. Okay, okay. (laughs) Or you really hate doing boss fights. You get really frustrated and instead of doing reps, we'll just shut it off. Like those kinds of things. But I come back. You do come back. It just might take you a year. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, No, it would would take me a year if we didn't have this podcast to record. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, on the whole, I'm optimistic. Mm -hmm. What I'm not super optimistic about is you getting through this game. Half-Life? Yeah. So... (laughs) One thing that I learned, so I haven't played this game since it came out. Okay. It came out late 1998. I probably played it in 1999. Another 1998 game. Yeah, it's a big year. Wow. Big, big. And yeah, we'll see more 1998 games shortly. Uh Uh-huh. I remember playing this game then. I mean, it's a long time ago. And I remember the ending, but I replayed it before this episode. Mm -hmm. And there's no way I got to that ending, honestly. 
Oh. There is absolutely no <laughs> like way. Like without cheat codes or anything like that? Or something. Okay. Yeah, this is... Uh, we might we might have some problems with this one. At least I won't feel like it's just me this time. In a way, <laughs> it like comforts me to hear you say that as opposed to like me saying, "Yeah, the the controls are a little weird," and you being like, "No, this game controls perfectly." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there are some things I'm really excited to talk about it. I still think it's worth doing, mm-hmm. and who knows, you might just blast through it. Because also there's weird stuff sometimes that I don't struggle with mm-hmm. or that weirdly clicks with me and I kind of like it. And then we're we're like gold, mm-hmm. you know, it's very unpredictable. Yeah. And as we'll get into, there are a few things that I think you're going to or a few reasons why I think this is going to be extra challenging for you. OK. I mean, one is you don't really play PC games. No. And as we'll get to, this is going to be your first mouse and keyboard game ever. Correct. So... We might be actually revisiting one of those, like your Bioshock moment when you were using the dual analog sticks for the first time. Yeah, I mean, a little playing around with Minecraft for like only a couple hours is mm. about is literally the only other time I have used a mouse and keyboard on a game. Yeah, so this could uh, this could be pretty fun. <laughs> yep, it's gonna be pretty something. Yeah, it's like there's a learning curve, and then this game is surprisingly difficult. Um, okay, great, and gets. A little bit annoying near the end. And uh, yeah, we can we might be able to do things to mitigate that. Okay. I mean, I'm going to play it on the easiest difficulty straight up. And there might be some like, other. Like no shame. Some other things that <laughs> Like we I do. don't feel any yeah. apology for that. Yeah. That's in the future. I guess we should figure out as usual what you actually know about Half-Life and the series in general. Apparently not much. <laughs> no. So one of the one of the things that I know is that this is like, well, okay, at least in Tell Alex like Half-Life Alex, which it's been a long time since the last Half-Life game. This was like one of the great dead series for a really mm-hmm. long time that I think ended on a cliffhanger. And like the the idea of when's the next Half-Life, I think, was like a, a thing for a while. So I think that's kind of exciting. I know especially Half-Life 2, I think, is the one that people consider one of the one of the greatest games, whatever, whatever. But so this OK, so this is something that I think we should talk about uh, maybe even now mm-hmm. is that I think one and two are both upheld as amazingly influential and important games mm-hmm. for different reasons. And really, after each of those came out, all games after were not the same. Wow. Okay, cool. Like incredibly influential. And I think that's why it's worth starting with number one, because I think you're going to recognize a lot that kind of begins here. Cool. And yeah, two was influential for different reasons. After two came out, it kind of had two um, follow-up stories, but not a three. So it had okay. Half-Life 2 Episode 1, Half-Life 2 Episode 2. There's supposed to be Half-Life 2 Episode 3, and that's what never came out. Okay. Okay. So, and that did end on a cliffhanger. Okay. So I don't know why that series stopped. I don't know anything about that. I don't know if like we collectively know the answer to that question. Um, I hope you'll tell me. I know that Half-Life is made by Valve. And uh, I know they started, I think they started as a development company, but then they launched Steam, which as far as I know, was maybe the first one-stop shop digital only storefront for PC. Is that accurate? Yeah, I can't remember if it was the first, but it's definitely the most influential and long-lasting. And, and still open. Yeah. Like, it's so interesting that you know Valve as the Steam people oh, primarily. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Because, yeah, kind of when you got back into games, their game output decreased dramatically. Right, right. Like, does Valve still make games Was has also been a joke for a while. Yeah, and you maybe know Portal and that... Yep. Or Portal 2, I guess, would have been the one that you would have encountered mm-hmm. um, first, maybe. And then, and then it's kind of it. 
Yeah. So I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that became a thing. I don't know why. Like I said, I don't know why they didn't make more Half-Lives. In terms of these games specifically, I know you play with the guy with glasses and a goatee whose name, I think his last name is Freeman. And I know it sounds like Morgan Freeman, but is not exactly that. (laughs) I don't remember. I've been trying to remember what I think his full name is, and I don't know. But I'm pretty sure his last name is Freeman. Yeah, it's Gordon Freeman. Gordon Freeman. I was actually pretty close. (laughs) Okay, so you know what he kind of looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a picture. Um, I know something with the orange box happened. I don't know what the orange box is. I know it was a big deal. (laughs) It's so funny that you know Valve as the as the storefront people and then the orange box because the orange box is just a collection of games okay that you could buy so you'd buy the collection that included half-life 2 the first two episodes of half-life 2 okay portal okay and i think team fortress 2 oh i didn't know that was under this i didn't know team fortress was also them yeah so really the orange box is just a video game compilation but like a really really good package okay but people loved it because i know about it also like there's like a word association thing here i know black mesa is something (laughs) i don't know what it is i think it's an organization maybe but i don't know but that's in the mix here somewhere interesting um i think so i i know this is a first person shooter i don't know what the enemy is i don't know how it works We've really reached the end of what I know at this <laughs> point. Black Mesa, Orange Box, Goatee, Morgan Freeman. Those are the those <laughs> are the highlights. Freeman. Gordon Freeman. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, great. So there's a there's a lot to discover here. Uh, I'm sure there's nothing <laughs> else to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, as we said, I think the maybe the even bigger de- deal here is that this is going to be your first PC first person shooter. Yep. And maybe we can start then by discussing your history with the, that genre. Or more specifically with the first-person perspective in general, because really, even on console, you don't play that many first-person No, shooters. I was going to say, this is going to be a real short conversation <laughs> if you want to just list those out. I mean... Especially in terms of like pure first-person yeah. shooters. You play quite a few games from that perspective that involve shooting, Yeah, but not, not first-person right. shooters like, proper. For some specifics. I mean, Bioshock is a first-person game where you shoot, but not a first-person shooter. Right. That's pretty... It gets pretty close, but... Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's still, that's kind of immersive sim yeah. genre, which is maybe the one genre name I hate more than Metroidvania. <laughs> oh my God. And we okay, can get we'll there. table that for another day. Um, I've played a bunch of the Fallout games. So three, New Vegas and four are all first person right, which with are, some shooting. Right, which were, but are really RPGs. Yeah, exactly. And with the VAT system, you're yeah. not actually doing, I mean, it, it's almost, you can make a turn-based shooting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have played Portal, uh, or Portal 2 at least. Um, have you not I, played the original Portal? I think I have. Is that is that the one with um, uh, Ricky Gervais's friend, Stephen Merchant? No, that's 2. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I've played Portal 1. The first one's with the cake. I don't... I'm not sure. Anyway, so I played Portal uh, somewhat. Like I said, I played probably like 10 hours of Minecraft, like not a lot of Minecraft. I played, likewise, I played a bit of Wolfenstein New Order. Okay, so this is actually a first-person a shooter right, proper. Right. This is maybe the only one of the games you've mentioned. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was hard. I played on easy. <laughs> it was still hard. Uh, I didn't finish it, but not because I wasn't having a good time. I just, like, left. But the thing is, even those games, like, I wasn't... It's never been a, a, a pro for me mm. that a thing is in first person. Hmm. I I'll be up front. I have a strong preference for third for a bunch of reasons. I'm open to 
having my mind changed. I'm open to having a good, uh, better experience with, with first in this case. Um, but historically, I would say I have an easier time in third, and I don't have a particular fondness for first. Yeah, maybe we can dig into that a bit more. What is it? Do you know kind of exactly what it is about first person perspective that you don't enjoy? Does it? Yes. Or can you describe how it feels? <laughs> okay, good. You've been thinking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, context awareness and precision of movement. So number one, I find it easier to you have much greater peripheral vision or or ability to take in what's going on around you from third than from first. Even a relatively tight third, you can see more on the sides than mm-hmm. you can from first. Um, I'm sure there are games that put that to good strategic use in using first person. Like I'm sure I could see this being an asset in like a survival horror game, for example, to be in first where you have blind spots behind you. And I've experienced some versions of that. Like I know it's happened to me before in a Fallout game that I got abruptly and severely taken out by a death claw that was behind me Mm -hmm. that I just had no idea was there. And that's kind of fun and funny in a fallout world, but I don't know that I would love that in a different tonal game, you know? I mean, that's also part of the appeal of that perspective in an action game that that your range of vision is quite limited. And so Mm -hmm. you have to be aware of what's happening in your peripherals and behind you and, and trying to manage that at all times, right? That it creates kind of a, a sense of a frantic pace. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I just like frantic pace is not always. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's not what you play games for. <laughs> and like, if you think about how I've reacted to other moments of like crisis or pressure <laughs> of that kind. Uh, yeah. So there's that. I find it much easier. I want to see my character's feet on the ground hmm. for movement. Like one of the signature experiences I associate with first person games that I've played is like trying to go through a doorway and not being aligned with it correctly. <laughs> yeah. So you have to like back up and retry or like strafe to be able to open it. And it's like, you know what I want to do. You know what I'm trying to do. And I just I just don't feel that. And also I tend to like, so part of this I think is actually kind of genre coincidence, right? Which is like a lot of the games I play, you're role playing as the character. And so it makes sense to be able to see them at all times. Um and not to sort of try to have this, um, not try to simulate the feeling of like being them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I will say the one thing I was thinking about that I think I have enjoyed first person more is when you are going fast in first person, it feels so much faster than going mm. fast in third. Like something about like moving or running or jumping, like the instability of all of that from your perspective I can see how that's fun. Uh, And I can imagine a game using that to good effect. Like I got that a bit in Wolfenstein when I was playing it. You ever played Mirror's Edge? No. Maybe. Is that the parkour game? It's like first person parkour. Okay. Maybe that would be worth. That seems like it would drive me nuts because you can't see your feet. This is a thing. (laughs) But you're moving fast. But yeah, moving fast is good. But also I can't tell whether I'm going to make it onto that ledge or not because I can't see where my feet are relative to the thing. It's the opposite of in Super Mario 64 when they made there be a shadow under you Mm -hmm. 100% of the time. So you can see where you are relative to whatever you're trying to get to. I, I always, you know, you're you're gonna run off the end of a platform because and hit jump too late and then fall. Mm-hmm. You're gonna jump too early. Like that stuff I find much harder in first. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited for the next episode. <laughs> Is this gonna be another slapstick adventure? <laughs> 
Gordon Freeman slapstick. I don't want to give too much away, but we'll we'll talk about it. Okay. Um, so I guess based on your own experiences, then are there any other situations where you think first person w- would be preferable, or why do you think then it's such a popular perspective? I wonder if some people think it's more immersive. I mean, I'm kind of making that up, but. Or I imagine there are some games where the hecticness is part of what you want. I mean, this is kind of hard for me to think about because, like I said, some of some of the reasons that I haven't played a lot of first-person games are sort of a coincidence of genre, which is that the genres I tend to like don't tend to be in mm-hmm. first. You know, it's not like a driving thing. Like, I play almost no multiplayer games. I've I've never played an Overwatch or or anything along those lines, and I know those are all predominantly first person i mean the shooters are that yeah the shooters the first person shooters tend to be yeah you don't play first person shooters right we have a chicken and an egg thing is i think what i'm trying to say here and so part of that it's it's hard for me to say what's appealing about that because it's not the most Mm. appealing thing to me if that makes sense so you brought up this question of immersion can you get into that a bit more Well, I imagine, so I don't know that I buy, I'm sort of like coming up with an argument that I think someone else might make, but then immediately also jumping to why I would disagree with, (laughs) why I would disagree with it. Um, I could imagine someone saying that without, you know, you're looking through the perspective of the character or the body that you're meant to be inhabiting, right? So you're not distracted by seeing their physicality. You're in the space in at level, at eye level with the character's eyes as opposed to having what I prefer because it's more easy tactically (laughs) a little bit of an elevated or backed up perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine it's that it's that Mm -hmm. um, opportunities born out of constraints, right? It's that Mm -hmm. it's that enclosed vision. It's not being able to see anything from the top down. It's not being able to see what's behind you. Like it's just choosing a different set of constraints for your player. Right. And I I think the thing that you're bringing up here that's really interesting is that how you're defining immersion might be different from how it is often used or how other people might define immersion. Yeah. For you, right, you're not talking about immersion in the sense of you embodying a character. Right. Or or identifying with a character more. No, I I don't think you would. And I think this is, I, I do conversely, though, think that part of the reason that I tend to like third is because I tend to like games that are driven by a character that is not just a cipher for the player. Mm, mm-hmm. um, like overwhelmingly, I prefer that. Uh, and so that to me makes sense more in a lot of cases when you are having to deal with and look at like the character's body. I tend to agree with that. And I think the the thing I've read that best crystallizes for me what first person perspective does and is mm-hmm. in games um, is this piece by Alexander Galloway. Okay. And what he's arguing there is that when we're talking about first-person perspective in games specifically, we're not talking at all about a player identifying with a character, that it's not about subjectivity in that way. Mm, right. And so so I think what's interesting is that when you think about when you think about the first person perspective, it really is something that is born from video games, especially in this sense. The only kind of corollary or movies here, because we're not talking about first person narration. No, 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 no. Can't really map those on. Yeah. Um, And one thing that he brings up when he's writing about this is okay, when we think about it in movies, the thing that we're most used to seeing is a point of view shot. That's what's really common. Right, right, right. Right, where it's, I mean, typically you get a shot of a character looking at something, then you get a shot of the thing that character's looking at. Right. But those shots are not subjective shots. 
those are objective shots by and large. You're not actually seeing from the character's eyes, even kind of in terms of cinematography, the camera's kind of placed beside where the character okay. would be. You're really just getting a glimpse of the object. What are they looking at? Yeah. Much, much more rare are actual subjective shots that put you inside the character's body. Oh, like um, like the end of Silence of the Lambs when they're in the basement and the the it's pitch black in the basement and you're you're looking from the perspective of um buffalo bill or whatever who's like oh, you can yeah. see him reaching forward for clarice yeah so yeah we'll get to yeah that's a that's a great usage okay. right and these these things are pretty rare and usually when they happen it is for a few reasons one is to make you kind of inhabit or get a sense of the character's psychology or mm-hmm. subjectivity so you get them a lot, for example, if if a character drinks too much and then you'll get right, their right, subjectivity right. and you'll see yeah. that everything's all blurry. Yeah. Or the other cases that you see kind of violent vision. So it, they're used often in horror movies mm. and often the viewer is put in or is given the subjectivity of the thing that is hunting. Oh, okay. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, like in yeah, the yeah, Buffalo yeah, Bill yeah. shot. You're seeing them run. You're seeing them like. Or you're seeing or you're kind of put in the visual and mental space of the killer who was that it was hunting usually the protagonist of the right, movie, right? right? And you're given those shots to help build tension. Right. right. So it's kind of this predatory vision. So in movies, those are pretty rare. But in games, the first person perspective is pretty common. Mm-hmm. And I mean, now, because people are used to games, you see that shot used more in movies. Mm-hmm. So like in, I think it was the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man's, there'd be a lot of shots from the first person perspective. Oh, of interesting. Kind of swinging about. Huh. But what's interesting there is I think that's much more aligned with how they're used in games, which, and this is, again, like Alexander Galloway's point, is that the subjective shot in games is not about identifying with a character, and it's not about the relationship between player and character, but it's about what he calls gamic vision and the relationship between the player and the space. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is kind of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about the the propulsive feeling of movement mm-hmm. in, in first person and... That that perspective that's like very within so contained by the space as opposed to feeling sort of over it in any sort of way. Yeah. And 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 that's his point is that we really need to think about that perspective, not in filmic terms, but in specifically gamic terms. And mm-hmm. it's really about your relationship and your ability to move through the space. And in a way, it makes you the camera that moves through the 3D right. space, right? right, like right. There's no locutus needed. <laughs> It's just your your vision and what the camera is are are synonymous. Right. And so in these in these instances, right, it's it's you moving through the space rather than you controlling a character moving through the space. Right. Um, and it's about this relationship between you and and the environment. Mm-hmm. But that does kind of ring true to you. That makes complete sense. That's a much smarter way of saying the thing that I was also trying to say. <laughs> What's really interesting though is that and this is another point that he brings up, and I think it's it's something that we should talk about a bit more is how often then that perspective is mapped onto violent gameplay or shooting, especially historically, right? Where it's usually it's the first person perspective is kind of the shooter perspective. It is the violent perspective. It is the perspective of the predator hunting the prey. Sure. But, and this is something that Galloway brings up too. There's no natural reason for that. But there's nothing that says first person, you have to have shooting. Right, right, right. Well, and and actually, I can think of a bunch of recent um, mm-hmm. not violent games. Like, I'm thinking of uh, The Witness, which is a, a great puzzle game that mm-hmm. is in first person that like doesn't need like it's you're not killing anything. You're making squares. Right. And also um, kind of the rise of quote unquote walking simulator. Gone Home is first person. Yeah. Something yeah. like Gone Home, something like uh, 
What Remains of Edith Finch. Yep. Um, and what we're seeing, I think, in really recent or relatively recent gaming history is developers realizing that the first person perspective can be used used for purposes other than kind of violence or shooting. Or- right. Well, and, and part of what I love about this idea actually is that games like Gone Home and What Remains of Edith Finch, particular, well, and The Witness, are all about your relationship with a space. Right. Like and they're, kind of thematically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's I mean, What Remains of Edith Finch is about building up this family history by walking through this family home, this space, and seeing all the different mm-hmm. places where people lived. Um, yeah. And of course, Gone Home is like a, a similar sort of idea about one story. But yeah, that makes a ton of sense. What a, what a like funny, natural convergence of of things. Yeah, and I, and I guess like when you really think about it it does make sense cuz how they're being how the kind of first person vision is used often in action games is about giving you the player a sense of ultimate progression and spatial mastery, right? Like if you're good at these games, you feel like you control the space. Mm-hmm. Um that you can move through it so fluidly and that you can build up momentum and really kind of dominate that space. And often, right, that makes sense why that would lend itself to something like a shooter. Mm-hmm. But it also makes sense why it would lend itself to something with puzzle or adventure elements that similarly are about really understanding the space you're in mm-hmm. um, in kind of this really intimate way. And that really forces you to poke and prod at every little corner. Yeah. Well, and I wonder to what extent these games are all games about what you choose to look at. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which I think is a slightly different way of of framing the space question. And that's an interesting thing about first person shooters, too, is unlike in third, where you have a little bit more like your sort of what you're aiming at can kind of be all over the place. Uh, a lot of first person, especially older first person ones, as far as I can tell, it's sort of like the thing in the middle of your screen is the thing that you're shooting at. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this synonymous and like in something like Gone Home, Gone Home is you can call it a walking simulator. Simulator, Really, it's a looking simulator because <laughs> really what you're doing is moving around and like aiming your focus at specific things mm-hmm. that then give you a response and, and move you forward. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I like that. I'm really excited to see where what people do with this perspective, especially mm-hmm. as they apply it more to exploration. Right. I mean, Outer Wilds actually is first mm. person as well. Now that I'm thinking this through and that's another like overwhelmingly nonviolent about exploring spaces, mm-hmm. about knowing and mapping a space. That's like the nth version of this theory, right? Mm-hmm. That That's like this theory turned into a game with beautiful art and music. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or when the point of the game is to really learn your surroundings and know your surroundings and explore your surroundings. Actually, first person is much easier. It's much easier to do that in first person than in third, hmm. right? It's much easier to notice details, I think, in first mm, person. Right. Um I mean, I find it easier to get disoriented also in first person, mm. but I'm not sure if that's because I'm just inexperienced at it. Like, I find it much easier in first as opposed to third to, like, be turning around and not have it exactly accurately mapped in mm-hmm. my head how far I've turned. Like, I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but I wonder if that's something that'll come together as I play more first person stuff. Yeah, as we go, it'll be interesting to see what other games we encounter that are in first person and how those games kind of rearticulate your relationship to that perspective. Yeah. And how they use it for different for different ends. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm I'm definitely open to being persuaded that this is a more valuable tool than I have been giving it credit for. <laughs> but I think the best place to start is with some of these earlier first person shooters. You can get a taste of what the genre was before Half-Life. So let's take a quick break and come back to talk about some classic 90s first-person shooters.
And we're back. So this is usually the part where I provide Michelle with some additional context about the game, but we're going to do something a little bit different today. Since Michelle isn't very familiar with first-person shooters, the genre we'll be discussing. Correct. And it's not my preferred genre either. (laughs) So I think it was really useful for us to both go through this exercise. So what we did is we played some of the landmark shooters that came out before Half-Life as a way to get a sense of what the genre was, so Michelle can better appreciate what Half-Life does differently and identify which genre tropes it's playing with and responding to. Yeah, I was really glad we did this. Um, One of the recurring hardest things about this project is figuring out how to unknow the things that I know about what is normal for games now and be able to feel things happening for the first time in their context. It's just so hard to unwind time like that. And so this was actually really helpful for for helping me chart the the trajectory and really get myself oriented. Yeah, so we played through a very, very brief history of the first-person shooter before Half-Life. We played Wolfenstein 3D, we played Doom, and we played Quake 2. We played 20 to 30 minutes of each of those (laughs) games, just for clarity. Yeah, and all id Software games. Uh, Because the history of the first-person shooters in the 90s is often treated as the history of this company, id Software. This is a super simplistic history. I'm kind of doing the thing that I hate (laughs) people do, which is give like the canonical history. But for our purposes, I think it's actually really useful because the games developed at id, while they didn't invent the first-person shooter, and while a lot of first-person shooters were coming out in between theirs... They really did set the template for what the first-person shooter kind of was, um, especially in the 90s. Okay. And so, because we don't have time to go through a detailed history, <laughs> and really that's not a history I know, Yeah. we're going to do this simplified version, and uh, just let me get away with it for once. <laughs> but it is, a, is an interesting company, and it was founded in 1991 by a group of four people, some of whom you might have heard of. You might have heard of um, John Carmack. Uh, I'm not sure I have. Um, you've probably seen him. Okay. He's maybe the name most associated with it at this period. He's um, incredibly technically minded, known for being a really terrific programmer, um, and has always been throughout his career um, invested in being in the leading edge of technology. What would I have seen him from recently? I don't know. He's just he's just one of those he's people who's around. around. Yeah, <laughs> okay. he, he left it to join Oculus. So you might okay. have seen him when Oculus was getting picked up. And then he, he's since left Oculus to now become a consultant. Um, and he really is focused on AI. So he's hmm. really just kind of trying to be ahead of the curve on whatever the most technologically interesting thing is. Neat. And is often credited with a lot of its technological developments and building the engines that they would then license to to other companies. Um, the other name you might know from id, one of the other of the four is John Romero. Oh, is he the guy with the great hair? Yes. Yeah, so you know he's got like, hair. honestly, the most incredible, like, I'm not trying to be funny. Sincerely, it is like some of the best hair, period. Yeah. he And he still has spectacular hair. It's beautiful. Yeah. He was another programmer and was the main level designer on um, all of the games you played today, except for Quake 2. So of uh, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom. And then even of the original Quake, he he kind of led the level design of those games. Um, and you're probably also familiar with his now wife, Brenda Romero. Right. From Train. Yeah. Who did and the board game Train and other, and other things. things. Yeah. yeah. They're developing Empire of Sin now together. What a cool couple. Yeah. <laughs> she's Every time I see her in something, I'm just like, God, that lady's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it actually started making 2D platformers. And I remember playing their... Their 2D platformer called Commander Keen, Ooh. which is the shareware <laughs> platformer that I I played like on like an old 386 or something back in the day. It was it wasn't great. It was okay. It was no it was no Mario, 
Uh, but they really had their first big breakout with Wolfenstein and then, of course, Doom, which really helped cement the company as the first-person shooter developer um, in the 90s. And really, up until Half-Life, it was the games that id Software developed that dictated what the first-person shooter was. Okay, so like they released one and every other company that makes these kinds of games is like, okay, we're doing Doom now. Yeah. It, yeah, it was very much the cycle. They'd release something, everybody else would kind of play catch up, and then they'd release the next game and everybody would play catch up uh, to that game. And so it's their vision of the genre that really dictated what the first person shooter looked like for most of the 90s. And there weren't a lot of companies who were willing to think outside of those parameters. Okay. Um, there are some other first person shooters from this time that were super influential generally and and for me that did precede Half-Life. Um, we're not going to talk about them, but just as a shout out, like Duke Nukem 3D was really influential. Okay. And um, I understand that you think that I would have a reaction to Duke Nukem. You would. Yeah, it was it was influential for some right and a lot of wrong reasons. Okay, I great. Think. But for a kid, there's some stuff yeah. in there that you're, I just found. You're just an idiot at that yeah, age. I could not point. believe what I was seeing. <laughs> boobs. Um, was it boobs? Yeah, it was boobs. Okay, great. <laughs> great. You know what? I'm happy for you. <laughs> Uh, and then the other one that was super influential for me and and maybe still the most fun I've ever had with a first person shooter was GoldenEye 007 on the N64. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I definitely played a tiny bit of this, like a tiny, tiny bit, mm -hmm. but messed around with it a little. Yeah. And that's still, again, I don't play a lot of current first person shooters, but that had a mission structure to it that made it feel almost as much of an adventure game as a first person shooter, even though it was very much a, a straightforward shooter. I don't know of any any other game. I'm sure there are some that I just haven't played that that do that, but I, re I remember it very fondly for having kind of missions that made the games more than just walking through labyrinths. Because really, the games you played for today, which are all emblems of this id Software model, are by and large kind of mazes or labyrinths at heart. Yeah. Right. Like the goal is to move through the space, defeat enemies until you find the exit, and often that means finding colored key cards. That, that unlock certain doors. But by and large, what you're trying to do is just navigate the space, get to, to the end of the level, and then move on to the next level. But these games are full of kind of kinetic energy, a lot of motion, really fast-paced, um, and just a lot of kind of momentum and shooting. And this was the, the, id, the id model. So the first one you played today was Wolfenstein 3D from 1992. It's very cute that this is like Wolfenstein 3D. <laughs> like when you see what it is, like I, I understand, but also like it's a little funny. <laughs> well, so there is... So there are older Wolfensteins okay. that are not from this perspective. Mm. And so that, yeah, the, the okay. 3D is just kind of used to differentiate them okay. from those games. I mean, this could really be considered the first real modern first-person shooter and really the template for all subsequent shooters. So you played through, I think, just the first few levels of it. I think I played the first two, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So what stood out about that playthrough? So a couple things. Uh, first of all... Um, the movement in this is pretty simple, but I like the way it controls your pace by having you in sort of one room or space at a time. There's sort of a loop that evolves, which I'm sure gets more complicated in later levels of like, you sort of edge up to a door, open it, you sort of pop into the room, do a quick scan of like who's in here, take out whoever you have to. There's like, at least the way I was playing it, maybe it's just because I was going really slow, like a little bit of a like tactical vibe. Um, like the music, good creeping music, <laughs> big old hitboxes on this one. All the guys are like, you can, if you shoot them anywhere within like 
their wingspan, like arms extended on either side. You'll hit them no matter what they're doing. Very generous. Mm. Very generous. Yeah, I was surprised how much, how many secrets there were. Yeah, so this is something that I told you about. Yeah, because you, you, your instructions to me were don't finish level one until you found at least one secret because you wanted to push me to not just zoom through it. Right. And also because this was so important to these games and, and the id software games, and this is probably the main reason I played them uh, even to the extent that I did, which is not a lot as mm-hmm. when I was young. I just loved the secrets, the secret walls. And and like these are secret ass secrets. These right. are like video game secrets, like right? Which a, is why- a wall that doesn't look like anything that you <laughs> click or whatever and it moves and then there's like a cache of health behind it or yeah. a new gun. Like, yeah. Yeah. And there is one of my kind of the memories I always have of playing these games as a kid, and I'm sure this is similar to a lot of people, is you just kind of, after you cleared a room, you just do the perimeter Every of the wall. room and just tapping space bar as you go, right. like doing the whole perimeter. Right. I In this one, I, from early on, because there's there's occasionally Hitler paintings on the wall, I was like, one of these Hitler paintings is giving you secret. So every Hitler painting, especially, I would go try to go to. And uh, at one point you were looking over my shoulder and you were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I know one of these Hitlers is going to be in exactly that moment. I found one that, that like actually did give a bunch of like, I guess, Nazi treasure behind it. Um, yeah, yeah I, I believe your quote was, uh, give me that war crime gold. <laughs> Listen, it's better me than them. <laughs> they don't deserve it. But yeah, the loop you described earlier really is what you do for the entirety of the game, pretty much. It's mm-hmm. pop into a room, clear it out. Your controls are just mapped to the keyboard and um, and the control key for you is to yep. shoot. And then the space, space bar, bar. To, to kind of activate things or, to look, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And that and that was more or less it. Yeah. There's uh, also no map. Oh, it, yeah. It's, it's all about you remembering how to get around through the space, which I really, really liked, although I bet it gets annoying and overly complicated on higher levels. Right. And this really is kind of a labyrinth style game especially yeah. because the um the tile sets are pretty limited mm-hmm. so all the walls kind of look the same and it's really easy yeah uh, to get lost in there so it really is it is kind of a maze first and foremost and then when you get to the end of the level um it does tell you it gives you a percentage it tells you your time mm-hmm. it gives you a par time to be yeah i was surprised by that it tells you what the percentage of secrets you found the percentage of enemies you killed the percentage and i think of treasure of treasure right yeah so again, incentivizing you to look for those things and maybe even to go back and look for them mm-hmm. later. So yeah, Wolfenstein 3D, pretty simple, but did set the template for most first-person shooters to come. Yeah, also uh, kind of fun. You Yeah, you enjoyed it? I actually kind of, I was surprised that I kind of got into this a little bit. Hmm. Like I could see playing it for a while to like see how far I can get. Yeah, there, there's something there. I mean, surprising no one, right? Like that's a stupid <laughs> thing to say. But <laughs> there there's something there. <laughs> There is something there for me. Like, I found something fun in there. And so after Wolfenstein, they really move on then to the game that cements the genre for years to come, the following year, 1993, with the release of Doom. Right. And here you have the basic Wolfenstein loop, Mm -hmm. but with much more elaborate level design, much more elaborate variety of levels, of weapons. Sped way up also. Right. Yeah. The the biggest thing that struck me about this is how hectic and kinetic it it feels mm. compared to Wolfenstein. So the old system, like open a door, sort of scan left, right, like edge out into a hallway. That's not this, right? This, this was much more often about plunging into a room, like often running past guys instead of taking everyone out gradually and then sneaking through. It's fast. It's weirdly platformy. There's like 
parts where you have to like zigzag run along paths to right. avoid falling into pits and stuff. Right, there's no jumping. Right, right. But but yeah, the level design is so much more elaborate that mm-hmm. and, and yeah, your movement, you're doing so much more lateral movement. Yeah. And there's verticality too in a way that there isn't in Wolfenstein. Mm-hmm. Like there's in the very first level there's a period where you're doing this little zigzag thing across a zigzag platform and there's there's an open upper level where guys are shooting down at you from. Um, so there's, and you can't shoot like directly at them at this point, you know, so there's. Well, you can't. So that's what's really interesting about this game is that you can't look up or down mm-hmm. or aim your gun up or down. Right. But it's designed in such a way that if there's a guy above you and you just shoot him, you'll you'll hit him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which, okay. Well. <laughs> and that makes sense that not knowing that era and kind of knowing how games work now, you wouldn't even assume that that would work yeah yeah i just didn't even try it i was like no i'm running like i'll get i'll just zigzag (laughs) yeah i mean doom was incredibly successful incredibly influential for years after because the the term first person shooter didn't really emerge until the late 90s Mm. these games for the longest time were just called doom clones and yet you and it it is really just wolfenstein but more Um, yeah and I, i don't think you lose you're right that it's much faster but it's just as tactical yeah, 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 for sure. I think um, one thing that sort of came, one thing that this game brought out in me that I was like, oh, that's interesting is, um, you know, when you are sort of in a hard bit in a game and like your brain feeds you an idea for what you could do that immediately you're like, that probably won't work, <laughs> but it might. And like, you're already doing it. Like by the time you process this, you're mm-hmm. like, I'm taking this long shot. What if I just run for it? What if I toss a grenade into that, cl-? you know, it, it gave me that feeling of like, I don't know, let's try it. That sort of um, rush of sort of hanging in by the skin of your teeth and maybe this will work. Mm-hmm. Like I got that at multiple points in this like relatively simple level structure, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. And I think this style of game really shows you the benefits of the first person perspective mm-hmm. in terms of how you can, again, relate to the space in a, in a tactical way, right? Because you come right. in and I think this is much easier or at the very least it, it's different than how you would approach this in third person. But you kind of have to enter space quickly, assess what the enemies are, mm-hmm. uh, recognize, okay, these guys are shooting me. These guys are going to try to run up to do some kind of melee attack. Mm-hmm. How do I move around here so I can take out right, right. one set of guys and then the next set right. and kind of prioritize which which enemies to take out first? And you're doing this all incredibly on the fly. fast like, on yeah. the fly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I think that really benefits from being in that first person perspective, kind of forcing you to right. react with that speed. It actually took me a minute to figure out that this was not a game where I was going to like uh, hide in a doorway and snipe things. Mm-hmm. Like, that this is a game where like no you keep moving you don't mm-hmm. you don't cower in a corner and try to pick things off you like you get going <laughs> and yeah and that circle was... around the room and take out what you can and then do another pass like yeah that's very much kind of the id software and uh, and kind of john romero design mm. the it's almost like it's a like a bullet hell twin stick or 2d yes. shooter but as a 3d i like that so game, much right? that makes sense to me so much yeah i really like that yeah there's just so much weaving and then the literal opposite of a cover shooter yes yeah <laughs> and again so many cool secrets just mm-hmm. everywhere and in recent interviews john romero has really lamented the fact that first person shooters just don't have secrets anymore mm. um, and on the one hand it's probably because a lot of games are, are aspiring to realism much more than right like doom right. i mean the recent dooms have secrets because they're that's the legacy that... And I feel like of. I get the sense that the recent Dooms have a playful jubilance. Mm-hmm. that they, they're, they're like, 
yeah, this is a video game ass video game. Oh, like, yeah. There's still, you well, know, that's like the thing. these games are so gamey. Right, 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 right. And yeah. even with right with that end of the level screen, giving you times to beat, giving yeah. you um, percentages, right? Yeah. It was very much like recognizing. No this shame is, in this. No, yeah, it's exactly. gamey. Yeah. And also, I think games now are so expensive and resource intensive mm. that a lot of times developers are disincentivized to include things that not everybody's going to find. Right. Um, so you played the first few levels of this as well. And Romero, and he's talked about this, developed the earlier levels, and especially the first level, I think he might have developed it, designed it last, because hmm. that's kind of his approach is that you figure out what the game is, mm. and then you introduce all of the key elements in the first level to kind of teach the player about the game and to hook them. Right. You figure out how to teach it after you know where you're mm-hmm. going. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I was still kind of surprised by how much fun I found it going yeah. back and playing it. And I, I, I'm considering... Um, actually playing through the whole thing. You, you've periodically, every once in a while when a new Doom comes out, you go through a cycle of like, maybe I'm going to play this no, one. I, I don't I, know. I mean, going back and playing that. The <laughs> oh, original. that original one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Though maybe, yeah, I'm always tempted by the 2016 one and Eternal. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day. <laughs> There's just for little spurts. I don't want that kind of visceral pace for like 14 hours. So that's a question I have. That That sounds exhausting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that's like a lot of adrenaline for a long time <laughs> yeah i can usually play these in really short bursts yeah so after doom the other one you played was id software's foray into full 3d space and that's the quake series yeah so you, we play quake 2 you play quake 2 just because it's kind of the uh, perfected version of quake 1 mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways so quake came out in 1996 quake 2 in 1997 built with the quake engine what became known as the quake engine so it's id software's internally developed 3d engine okay that was licensed by a lot of other developers who wanted to make 3D first-person shooters, including Valve, the developers of Half-Life. Oh, okay. And so in terms of your trajectory, this is your first encounter with actual 3D polygonal space. So you'd see things like much more complex architecture. Yeah. You're dealing with verticality and looking up and down for the first time. Yep. So and how did that up and down. Yeah. So how did that go? Okay. So first of all, uh, one of the first things that you do in this game is, or that I did, was open up the screen to figure out what all your keyboard commands do. There's too many damn commands in this game. I just remember seeing this like long list and being like, oh, I'm never going to learn this. Like straight up, I can't, you couldn't possibly ask me to learn all these commands. Right. So your your movement options are so much more diverse now, right? Mm-hmm. That you can, now you can jump and now you can crouch. Obviously you can now look, like we said, look up and down, shoot yeah. up and down. Yeah. Um, and to the game's credit, I did end up getting more comfortable with the controls than I thought I was going to at the start. Still not, uh, easy. Um, but I think like one of the other weird things is it's just a list. It's not like a diagram of the keyboard. So my, oh my very visual memory. So, and also I think keyboards have changed in their layouts. Cause I know one of the, one of the pairings, I, I forget which, which, uh, set of commands they were, but it was something like strafe left strafe right um it was the page down and the delete key and like those are not beside each other on my keyboard it's like clearly at one point this was standardized and now it's not i mean so one thing that's really interesting is that how you control these games was incredibly inconsistent oh okay and especially with 3d first person shooters at this point there was no standardized way to play it Hmm. and we'll get to this in a bit to be honest the way that their default controls are not the easiest way to play at least for me now, okay, knowing great. kind of where, where control, how controls get standardized. Okay, got it. Yeah, I, it still had you playing primarily with the keyboard. Yeah, which is incredibly difficult when you're dealing with 3D space and need to kind of operate on the Z axis. This one, 
also asked a lot more precision in terms of where you're aiming and shooting. And I found that extremely hard using just the arrow keys. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't use a mouse or a joystick or whatever for this. And it, it was very hard to get that fine, that fine aiming working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it didn't help this game that I have no idea what's going on in it. And I left with no more understanding than I did at right, the you start. D- you played the first mission because you can get the de- the demo for free on, on yeah. Steam. So you didn't have the benefit of the opening cutscene that would set up the barest bones of a story. Sure. But even that, I was just like, I don't I don't know what any of <laughs> this is about. And I mean, that's that's the thing, right? It, it very much is, even though it's in 3D space, it's very much the Doom structure. It's mm-hmm. the... Um, and Romero talks about this when doing the original Quake, which he wanted to use as an opportunity to do something kind of completely different. Hmm. He envisioned it as like a beat-em-up fighting game for parts of it, Whoa. for really mixing up kind of what you could do in 3D space. Hmm. And ultimately, it decided, no, we'll just do what we know works, and we'll just kind of <laughs> map on... How about another Doom? ...the Doom structure onto 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 this. Okay. Yeah, so by the time Quake 2 r- rolls around, John Romero's actually not even working there anymore, but... You can see the legacy of his design philosophy through all of these games. Cool. Yeah, I I was doing okay with this game, surprisingly, until I fell in a lava pit. And <laughs> But there was a little like safe place to stand, and there was a button. So I hit the button, and every other button in this game had been an elevator. So I assumed this was going to be an elevator that took me up to surface level. And no, it flooded the rest of the pit with lava, and I died. And that's how I learned that you have to manually save in this game. Oh, no. There are no like auto save checkpoints and I got to start this whole thing over. So this game and I were not <laughs> as chummy as uh I felt with Wolfenstein or Doom. Oh man, you're going to learn you're going to learn so much, but I think you're going to love the kind of built-in expectation that you do a bunch of saves coming in Great. these games. <laughs> love to save scum. <laughs> love it. Yeah, you're going to get really used to uh your fingers going directly to uh F5 to Great. do a quick save. Great. <laughs> but yeah, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Quake. These are really the games that set the foundation for what first-person shooters were and and really set expectations for what would make a good first-person shooter. So, you know, going into going into a new one, players would expect kind of discrete levels and mm-hmm. and good level design, really fast-paced action. One of the biggest drawing points of any first person shooter was its variety of weapons okay uh, which you didn't really get to engage with that much i don't think you didn't get i actually got a handful in quake oh yeah quake actually gives you a good variety right up front right from the beginning i want to say i had five or six Mm. by the time i was getting to the end of level one yeah and and that would be something that um when these games were coming out we'd always get excited about like, you know, what what kind of weird weapons? Because it's mm-hmm. always the standards, right? There's always kind of like a pistol, a shotgun, like right. some kind of semi-automatic. But what when you get to the end, what are the weird big guns? <laughs> like you get a rocket launcher, okay. um, a grenade launcher, or or something even more imaginative. Okay. Like you didn't see this, but in Doom, there is this huge futuristic gun that's like the culmination of all the guns. Okay, it's like the last gun. And it's called the BFG. And Big I, effing gun. And I just remember like distinctly as a kid learning about that gun, like yeah. BFG and like one of my friends coming and being like, do you know what BFG stands for? <laughs> Big fucking gun. And it was this, it was, it was, it was just, yeah, you feel so badass and you still do. <laughs> You want what's the big? You want the game to say a weapon. cuss in the name. <laughs> yeah, that's how you know it's a good yeah. gun. But yeah, variety of guns and weapons, frenetic pace, 
good maze-like levels. This was really the DNA of the first-person shooter that id Software had set up. And this brings us to Half-Life, a game that really tried to upturn this paradigm. And so let's take another quick break. We'll go look over some promotional materials, all of which will be linked to in the show notes. And when we come back, we'll talk about Half-Life. Awesome. back to finally get to uh, Half-Life itself. Mm-hmm. So when we left off kind of in our histo- on our historical timeline, Quake 2 was out and was seen as the benchmark first person shooter in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And even in 1997, when Half-Life was under development, PC Gamer um, had an article that really, I think, crystallized what a lot of people were feeling at the time, that there were a lot of Quake clones that had come out and a lot that were in development, mm-hmm. including games like Prey, um, the original, which actually didn't come out until 2006. Is that one not the immersive sim prey that I would know? No. There's oh, okay. A, there's like an original in 2006 that was in development in 1996. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, John Romero's game, Daikatana, that also didn't come out for a few more years. Um, Unreal. So a lot of these games that seemed very similar to Quake, uh, many of them that used the Quake engine. Mm-hmm. Um, Unreal obviously didn't. It had its own engine, the Unreal, the Unreal engine. engine. Okay. Yeah, which iterations of that still exist. But PC Gamer is saying, okay, there's all these games coming out, but none of them really has a clear vision for the future of the genre. Hmm. And they were kind of, they were really counting on Half-Life to be maybe the game that could push the genre forward or at least have some kind of vision for what it could be outside of ultimately still kind of the Wolfenstein doom. Yeah, this well-tread structure that we have, yeah. And so Half-Life really is... It's influential and important for a number of reasons, from how it developed add-on content or its expansion packs to its multiplayer to its modding community. But we're really going to focus on the game itself, the the single-player experience. So Half-Life was Valve's first game, and Valve was really just founded in 1996 by some former Microsoft employees Hmm. um, who really just wanted to make games, and Microsoft wasn't making games at the time. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, so it's um, Gabe Newell, who's the name you are probably most familiar with. The last time we saw him on the show, he was writing into video game magazines about how excited he was for Metal Gear Solid. Yep. <laughs> before he became kind of a household name himself. Um, and and Mike Carrington, who also left Microsoft with with Newell to form Valve. What's really interesting is that they're they're programmers. They worked on operating systems. Neither of them really knew how to make a game. They just hmm. knew that they wanted to make a game. And in interviews, Newell talks about how they really benefited from being so naive about the process because they weren't. <laughs> confined by how things were usually done Mm. and they felt that because they really didn't know how to make a game they didn't know what the limitations were they didn't know what other people would say the limitations were sure and they really felt that they had the freedom to do what players and the press said they wanted from an action game Hmm. so they did a lot of interviewing with um, people in the press with just consumers and just asked them right like what do you want to see in your game that's such a interesting and feels like such a backwards way of going about the creative process it's like you know you think about like design by committee and it usually turns out awful it's like <laughs> oh this one time it works <laughs> and they're like we need to leave Microsoft to make games that we want to make that everyone wants us to make <laughs> yeah and there's interviews with uh with Gabe Newell from around that time and it, it's really funny because they're such a new company he's talking about how 
so many other companies, especially ones that have, are kind of resting on their laurels, like in id Software, mm-hmm. he sees them as almost not listening to the consumers or thinking they know better or um, speaking down to customers or, mm. or treating the customer like they're, they're kind of nothing. Um, he refers to, so John Romero's making a game, Daikatana, around mm-hmm. this time that was incredibly, there was a lot of hype for it. it. It kind of fizzled out. The game was delayed until 2000. Whoa. And it was kind of a disappointment when it was released. But the the marketing campaign for that game was, um, it was something like, it like the ad copy would say, like, John Romero's going to make you his bitch. <laughs> Great. And, and like, Gabe Newell has an interview, like, we don't... Why, though? <laughs> and it's like, we don't want to make customers our bitch. We like customers. <laughs> Is this like the the seeds of the weird like consumer advocacy like strain? No, I don't think it's I don't think it's like that. Like there wasn't this wasn't like popularly known that like it's not like Valve's going and interviewing gamers like you. It's just what they did. Okay, cool. And he says that when he was talking to people, one thing he realized is that people wanted to be in a world. They didn't just want a shooting gallery, Mm. and so they took all of this. this feedback and tried to put in, in, into a game. Though he said that the only thing we didn't put in that people wanted were naked women. We'll leave that to other games. <laughs> you know what? When you started that sentence, I almost interrupted with boobs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I didn't need to. <laughs> all of the 14-year-olds we asked all wanted the same thing. An immersive world with big old boobs. <laughs> other kind of BFGs. <laughs> All right. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till we get to Duke Nukem. (laughs) Save that one. The thing is, uh, Newell himself was a huge fan of Doom, and he loved it and did find it genuinely frightening. And he actually wanted to take that element from Doom, that kind of experience, Mm. the fright, and and bring that into into a game. So he kind of wanted to marry Doom with Stephen King's The Mist. Like, that was the vision in his mind. Whoa, cool. Okay. So I was looking at um, interviews from the time, and I found this really interesting quote from Newell in, in Next Gen Magazine. That I think really crystallizes what he wanted to do and I think speaks back to our earlier discussion of first-person shooters and the first-person perspective. He says, quote, I think there is this interesting notion that traditionally these games are about a sort of mastery and dominance, and that's a really adolescent fantasy. In a lot of shooters, the player is the deadliest thing in the world, right? The whole point of the game was to reach the point where you just killed everything. And we thought people wanted a different kind of experience. That there was a broad audience that didn't just want to be the master of everything and the killer of everything. And I find it so interesting that he's using these of the language of spatial mastery and yeah. and like really tapping into what a lot of games critics now would call the colonial gaze of games. Yeah, it that's like something that becomes a big critical thread, like a bunch of years after this. Yeah, and here's like Newell in the late nineties really thinking about this and thinking about how the first person perspective might be able to do something it's different. Cool. And yeah, I'm really curious to see if you think that he actually achieved anything different with <laughs> <Sure>. this game. <laughs> but really, the key thread of all of the all of the things that he would say in interviews about the goals for Half-Life was to move beyond that id Software template. Um, in a PC Gamer, he says, quote, we need to move beyond running through a load of rooms, shooting things from far away as possible, collecting keys and just moving to the next level. Hmm. So he really wants to rethink the structure of what a first person game and first person shooter can be. Cool. And I think you see this in some of the advertising that we'll talk about in a bit. So people are writing about this game in 1996, but again, this is an untested, unproven company. Right. But then they show a demo at E3 1997, and there's so much excitement coming out of that demo. Little was known about the game before then, but then um, it got some best of show awards from Hmm. some outlets. PC Gamer, for example, was really excited about it at that point. You can see in some of the advertising, and you saw one of these, they were promising a demo in October, like a Halloween demo. And that demo 
I don't think ever came out because oh. right a- around this time, they pretty much scrapped the entirety <gasps> of the game and started from scratch and delayed the game for over a year. What? Yeah, it's like this. they had this demo that the press was really People excited loved. about and they just internally weren't happy. They didn't think that the game was doing what they wanted it to do. It, again, I don't know exactly the extent to which it was sure, gutted, sure, sure, but sure. it really sounds like everything was kind of taken apart and starting more or less from scratch with these components as the building blocks. And there's a huge reassessment of the project. They reorganized how they were running the project internally. There started to be weekly team meetings with leaders from different departments and more interdepartmental collaboration. So you'd have the people writing the AI, working with mm, the level mm. designers, working with the artists much more closely, more intensive playtesting with local gamers. Okay. Yeah. And really just building this game back up. That's nuts. You know what's interesting, though, is like from my own uh, very, very modest experience with creative work, I completely understand being at the point where like the end is in sight and just being like, my God, if I could just right now, like start this over, knowing everything that I know, I could do such mm-hmm. a better job. And at that point, they were just like, okay, start over. Yeah. Like it, it's, they, they followed that. In, like, it, it's just, I, I just am relating so hard to, like, I know that moment, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Where you, you finally understand what it is you're building and what it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, And in most cases, it's too late to do anything about that. You have to be like, okay, maybe there'll be a sequel or something. But in this case, they're like, oh, we can do that now. We just need it. We just need a year or whatever. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Especially as a new company that yeah. is now at this point, they've gotten Sierra on board as a publisher, but Again, as a new company, they don't have incredible leverage. How probably, you paying with bills publisher. with these? Like, <laughs> but they do it, and that does seem to be a recurring theme with Gabe Newell, hmm. and maybe one of the reasons that we don't have Half Life Three yet. Because okay. <laughs> even in interviews later, he talks about like people are asking him like his memories about Half Life, for example, and he says, "Well, because I was kind of at the level where I was making these high level decisions and was really really making decisions about every part of it, all I have are regrets." Wow. Because he still just imagines what, even still what it could be. And it sounds that way with Half-Life 3, where as time passed and expectations built, if he couldn't make a game that would be as influential, that would be a a disappointment. And as expectations grew, that just became kind of impossible. This is so interesting to me because this is not the picture of Gabe Newell that I feel like I have from my time following game stuff. Mm. Like, I think this is, again, a function of me knowing Valve primarily as the Steam company, Mm -hmm. not the we make influential games company. Like, this is so you're painting me a portrait of someone who like really wants to do something special and is like incredibly focused on the like the quality of the product in the end. Not to say that Steam isn't, but like Steam, it feels like such a more... um, I picture Valve as being such a more like uh, capitalist in the crudest <laughs> sense, mm-hmm. you know, a little more mercenary, a little more like uh, less invested in like, okay, what's best for the game or like games or something mm-hmm. like that. Do you do you kind of know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I I'm surprised by the picture that I'm getting of of this like young Gabe <laughs> Newell who's like trying to make his way and like uh, has these ideas. Again, like, I, I don't know the most about his career trajectory or... Sure, sure, sure. But, I mean, Steam is a way for them to pay the bills without having to make games at a ridiculous pace, right? Right. Like, it is. Right. It might be something that actually feeds into this, yeah, this al- perfectionism. I mean, also, that, that like, 
capitalist streak is not at all incompatible with like wanting with like what we've been talking about mm-hmm. really it just i don't know i'm not mm. he he sounds so much more like the hero in this <laughs> telling and i'm used to hearing him as like a little more of a not quite villain but like you know i mean i am most of what i'm recounting now are his words from interviews right? i so. see also who knows it was probably a nightmare to work with like oh, on that not, team yeah, let's not speculate let's why not bother spe- yeah so they pretty much retool the game from scratch Show it off again at E3 1998, where people are even more blown away, <laughs> wins more Game of Show awards, and then is finally released after they have another scare where they almost lose all their code. Oh, my God. It's finally released in November of 1998. Uh, but I think what's interesting is that in terms of what the ads that I had you look at, a bunch of them were from 1997. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Ga- they were advertising this game heavily in 97 before the retool. Telling you all about it. Um, So one of the things that I actually like about especially the 1997 ads is like, they're very direct about like, here's how this game's different. Like they're just gonna, they're not being mostly all that cute about it. They're just like, guys, we got really good enemy AI. They're smart. This is not a dumb game. In 1997, that's the major talking point. AI, they feel alive. Those are the two talking points for this game as a whole (laughs) as of this point. Yeah. So do you want to describe the the ads you saw from 1997? Sure. So I saw one that I saw two um, and they're a similar format, but they're focused on a different thing. So one is about, um, I guess, this alien that is like the the main bad possibly of, of Half-Life. And it's just talking about how this alien wants to survive as bad as you do. And he's going to fight as hard as you are to stay alive. And that means killing you. And like, He's going to turn, he's going to communicate with other lower alien things and turn them against you and have them all working together. And it really emphasizes like the uh, the sort of header on it is like he would have graduated first in his class from the academy, except he ate the drill sergeant. <laughs> so it really emphasizes this is like an intelligent creature mm-hmm. that you're fighting and that it feels like being trapped with a living thing, not something that's going to like run into your line of bullet fire. Right. And like a living thing that responds to you and that responds to the cronies around him yeah. that, that he can kind of direct, right? Yeah. That is kind of squad based. This was something that was consistently pushed. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, the other one highlights this assassin character, um, which is interesting because you'll see what how the assassin actually plays out in the game. Okay. And, and this is a great uh, header where it says <laughs> she's smart, has a great personality. And knows that the way to a man's heart is through his sternum. Yeah. And the picture of her is like shoving a blade like at the camera. Yeah. yeah to her, her crossbow. Yeah. And says, then the copy says, quote, she's a trained government assassin whose only goal is to silence you permanently. <laughs> and you're running out of places to hide. Think the only opponents worth fighting are those you meet in a death match? Think again. With Half-Life's advanced character AI, you'll battle enemies so smart, you'll swear they're alive. Sounds like it could be written by the same person who wrote that old Super Metroid. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like a little, but less goofy, right? Like mm-hmm. this is more like, okay, let it, let us explain what is going to be special about this game. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, there's a bit of that like bravado, but it's, it's so much more forgivable to me in this format. Cause you're also just telling me about the, like, right. I've learned something about how this game will work and what I'm doing. So like, fine. <laughs> What's really interesting about the 1997 ads is, right, the focus is on the enemies. There's no Gordon Freeman. Yeah, who Freeman. are you? You have no idea. Yeah. By the time you start seeing ads again, once the game is kind of back on track or, or on a different track, 
the messaging changes a little bit and you start seeing more of a Half-Life branding that I think we're more familiar with. So you looked at a bunch of ads from closer to its actual release. And so one of them was this uh, kind of three-page spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like this one. So this is a a direct like (laughs) call out to the Romero format of first-person shooter, right? Like the first whole page on the left is just block letter saying like, run, shoot, run, shoot, run, run, shoot, 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 run, 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 shoot, 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 blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then the bottom and small font's bored yet. And then the other two-page spread, uh, which is about Half-Life, has text across the top that's like, run, stop, hear soldiers flanking you, retreat, lead scientists to retinal scanner. Okay, we have to talk about whether there's going to be escort missions in this thing, (laughs) because I'm worried. Duck under gun turrets fire, loot enemy corpse, cut power lines, turn on flashlights, sneak past four-story alien, break the... Like, it's all this other stuff mm-hmm. that you're going to be doing besides just this running and shooting that... Which is like a reductive way of articulating what is going on in the, the earlier first-person shooters, but it really works to emphasize how much more they are hoping this will be. So yeah, I, I like this ad. This ad also teaches me things. It's informative... Right. And it's very much telling you, right, this game is different and this is why. Yeah. Clear like, mission very, statement. Yeah. Yeah. It's very concise. I understand and, what we're doing here. And I also gave you the back of the box. Yep. And I think that mission statement's also pretty clear and I think even more concise on the back of the box. Run, think, shoot, live. That's the most prominent text on the entire back of the box. Right. And and adding that think to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you as the player actually have to put maybe some more thought into this. And Right. This is this has been a constant, I think, of a lot of the games we've seen Right, mm-hmm. about games that are saying, OK, we're an action game, but but you have to think. Yeah. Again, and, the Metroid formula a little yeah, bit. Metroid yeah, Metroid does it. Shadow of the Colossus did yeah. it. This does it. Right. There there seems to be a sense that that gamers aren't pushed hard enough to use their, their yeah. mental faculties and maybe they <laughs> want they just, games. That or they just like that. to be flattered into <laughs> thinking that they're really quite smart. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Even on the back of the box, it's advertising its advanced AI again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the environments and, yeah, the strategy level and all that stuff. Um, And then I also showed you an ad that came out shortly after the game was released. So it could actually have some of the pull quotes from uh, a claim that it has received from certain Mm -hmm. media outlets. But here's where you see Gordon Freeman. Yeah. And he's all I mean, he's also on the box. Uh, If you get the big box and he wasn't on the cover, but you could open it had kind of like a foldable cover and you could open it. You could see Gordon Freeman. Okay. What do you think of Gordon Freeman as a leading character i mean the glasses are a surprise right yeah actually on on the original box he's not wearing glasses and they were quickly added later hmm. that now and now he has is that because we're smart in this one we're thinking is this the like they have to add he's like not just a meathead i I guess so i guess that's why they added the glasses like this can't be a (laughs) blaskowitz that's like what they're what they're doing yeah yeah He's got the goatee, which is also, I believe, at this point in time, the thinking man's facial hair of choice in 1998. (laughs) So do you know what he is? No, not at all. Like what his deal is? No, no. Uh, I do. I did know that his colors are black and orange. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that up front, but I did actually know that. Um, Yeah, no, I have. uh, I have no idea. I feel like in 2020, he'd have those like yellow framed like gamer glasses. (laughs) But yeah, no, I, I don't know. He, he still he still stands out as mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. does not he's not a leading man. Well, what's funny is he's still just like that white guy with the high and tight haircut. They just like put a goatee and <laughs> and glasses on him. You know what I mean? Like he's still right. just yeah, that yeah. he's still that same that same exact guy. Like you could put a bandana on him and like change his clothes, and you're like, oh, snake. <laughs> but yeah, somehow the the you know the details are I guess 
where we really see the uh, character expression. And so <laughs> this one has glasses. He's like he's like um the early she's all that version of <laughs> of Solid Snake. Like he like takes his glasses off and throws his hair and like sh- gets clean shaven <laughs> and puts on the bandana. And you're like snake. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, we'll we'll come back to Gordon. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, he looks different. <laughs> okay, so I, th- I I think we've I don't really want to say anymore because I kind of do want you to go into this pretty blind. Um. But yeah, as you play, keep those other first-person shooters that you have played in mind, because this will help you kind of note and appreciate maybe what Half-Life did differently. Okay. And you can see if it actually lives up to how it advertised itself. Sure. And then, yeah, I think the other thing I'd want you to keep in mind is other things that you recognize, A, that it does differently, but that also you see as things that have become standardized today. Okay, you might, cool. That might actually seem familiar to you, knowing what you know about current games. Got it. Yeah, and the other thing I really want you to think about is um, your just your general control setup. So this was oh, no. one of the first, if not the first game that did standardize the mouse and keyboard, WSAD okay. movement, and then the mouse look style. And you've never played a game like that. Nope. And that has become kind of the convention of first person shooters. Yeah. And this was, this was a style, uh, a configuration that was maybe popularized by a professional Quake player. So as we said, this wasn't, I mean, as you know, these weren't the default Quake controls. Yeah. And then this professional Quake player, uh, Dennis Fong, who went by uh, by Thresh, he learned that if he actually used the mouse to look and WSAD, he he was just so much more nimble and could play so much faster and better with this configuration. So that just, they just saw him doing that and were like, oh shit. It's partially because he did it and then other people had to adopt it to Mm -hmm. kind of keep up. And then... It kind of spread via word of mouth, which I think is, and just like over the internet, that maybe this is a way you want to configure your controller. That is so interesting. And so it's it's hard to know exactly what the origins were. Sure. And I think he even said that he saw his brother using a similar configuration that made him think that maybe I need to use the mouse to look around and I just, oh, and I become immediately better. Wow. And so, yeah, other people have to have to adopt it to adapt and sure, because sure, sure, you're sure. just so much faster with the mouse and so much more precise. And so this configuration spread and the story goes that the people who are developing Half-Life, that's the configuration they would use to play Quake. Mm. And so they just made it the standard in Half-Life. Cool. And it has become the standard. That is so so interesting. So I'm very curious to see you try this configuration out for the first time and see what you think. Cool. Before we do that, we do have some predictions for you to make about your Half-Life experience. So I did real bad on Super Mario 64. Hoping to do better this time. Okay. This isn't really a prediction. It's just, I want to know what you think. How old do you think Gordon Freeman is? 35. Okay. Will you fall in love? No. I mean, Gordon Freeman, not you <laughs> not you in relation to the game. No. Okay. What's a G-man? Uh, uh, um, like a government stooge, like a government, not stooge, uh, like anonymous agent. Maybe someone who works under the assassin. It's like a flunky. Name one non-standard weapon that you'll encounter. Uh, so no pistol, shotgun, none of the traditional ones. Like what's a nail gun? A nail gun. Yeah. Okay. Will you snipe a head crab? Does that have to be with a sniper rifle, or is that just if I do it, then it counts? I'm asking you, will you snipe a head crab? <laughs> uh Yes. Will you electrocute a gargantua? Um, yes. 
Will you perform any science? Uh, no. Will you do a backflip off your motorcycle? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say no because that feels like bait. Is your time to gun over or under three minutes? Oh my god! Uh, and we'll count this the kind of the moment you boot up. What is time? Time until I get my gun? Is that what that is? Yeah, it's like you know, like time to suit. No in superhero movies. How long it takes them to be in their suit? Okay, now I do. I didn't know that was oh, the thing. Yeah, this is time to gun. Okay, uh, uh, under. Will you leave Earth? Yes. Oh. oh, what if I'm never on Earth? Then I don't technically leave it. Is this a tricky wording question? Okay, I'm calling that I will not be on Earth at some point in this game. That's not really what the question yeah. said. Oh, you try to get me, but I'm too <laughs> smart. All right, we'll see you next time. That's because you're wearing those glasses. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe we're in space. Okay, we'll check in on you next time. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, um, as always, you can find our uh, show notes in the episode description, including links to all the materials we talked about. Um, you can find all of that and more on our website, neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. I'm really excited for Michelle to get started on this game, which, in my opinion, is actually way harder than a From Software game. Whoa. So uh, we'll see you next time when Michelle will hopefully be one step closer to becoming a gamer. <laughs>